The historian John Wigger's new book is full of these incredibly dramatic stories of desperate men who managed to sneak disguises and machine guns and bombs onto passenger jets and ask for ransom money. And then, and this is the most dramatic part, they would jump from the back stairs of the plane. Wigger writes about this spree of these parachute hijackings in the early 1970s. And it all started with a man who's come to be known as D.B. Cooper, who jumped with $200,000 into the rugged Cascade Mountain Range in November of 1971. Cooper, or whatever his real name is, was never seen again. But Wigger told us he inspired the others, men who all seemed to fit into a type. The second of these was Richard McCoy. He hijacked and parachuted from a United Airlines flight, United Flight 855, in April of 1972. McCoy, he's an interesting guy in that he has a background that fits the profile of these parachute hijackers in the early 1970s. So in 1962, he enrolled at BYU. He came from a Latter-day Saints family. He left to go to Vietnam, joined the Green Berets, was wounded and returned in 1964 and re-enrolled at BYU. But I think he really yearned for that thrill of combat. So he had re-enlisted in 1967 and trained as a helicopter gunship pilot, went back to Vietnam, and by all accounts flew with reckless abandon, won a distinguished flying cross for heroism. And then after his tour of duty was up, he came back to Utah, to BYU, and re-enrolled, met his wife, Karen, and they were married, and they had two children. But civilian life was a difficult adjustment for McCoy. He continued to fly helicopters in his National Guard outfit, continued to parachute jump. This was a guy who was looking for the kind of excitement that he had found in Vietnam. And then in April, he boarded this United's flight and hijacked it. And he had a pretty carefully crafted plan. As soon as he boarded the airplane, he went to one of the lavatories and put on this disguise of sunglasses and heavy makeup and a wig. And he had typed out hijack notes to have the stewardesses, as they were always called at the time, take to the pilot. But he had left them in an envelope in the gate area. So while he's in the laboratory, and a gate agent had spotted this envelope and brought it onto the plane, and the stewardess made an announcement, you know, we found an envelope in the gate area. Does it belong to anyone on the flight? So he went ahead and burst out of the lavatory and raised his hand and claimed the envelope, which they had not opened. So shortly after takeoff... He sent the note forward with a grenade pin in it and said that he had pistols, C4 explosives, and, of course, the grenade that he had pulled the pin out, which turned out to be a dummy. And he had demands. He wanted half a million dollars in cash in a bag. He wanted four parachutes. 
and he wanted to divert the plane to San Francisco. And all of that happened. So they got the money, he got his parachutes, they took off again, he had let the passengers off. And he'd also given the pilots pretty detailed instructions, kind of a zigzag route flying east. And at one point, it would take the plane over Provo, Utah, which is where he lived. So he waited until that point, sent the stewardesses up to the front rows in first class and just had them sit there, had the back half stairs lowered. And once he saw Provo from the air, he knew it was time to go. And he jumped. He got everything under control and managed to steer and land in a pasture near a highway, took the bag of money, stuffed it into a dry culvert, walked to a nearby drive-in, and paid a 16-year-old boy $5 to give him a ride home. You know, 1968 to 1972, which is when all of these airline hijackings are grouped, It was a turbulent time in American society and American culture. And airline hijackings just sort of fit this time in a way that just seems really shocking today, but actually seemed pretty unremarkable to people at the time. And then added into that is the way that D.B. Cooper became something of a cultural folk hero almost overnight. So if you put this all together, all of this sort of craziness of the time period, and then D.B. Cooper looking like this cultural icon, there were a number of people, in fact, five of them in the end, who looked at that and said, I can do that too, and in the process, I can get a lot of money. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Today in the program, John Wigger is talking about how D.B. Cooper got this skyjacking craze going. The book is called The Hijacking of American Flight 119. It's full of history about air flight and security and parachutes. And Wigger says the hijackings fit into this cultural moment of the 70s where you had this sense of chaos gripping the country. This is when the Vietnam War really starts to turn in a way that most Americans decide it's untenable for the U.S. to remain there and uh, probably a mistake in the first place. So actually, Vietnam is big in this story and figures into many of the backstories of hijackers. But it's more than that. This is a period in which like books on the end times are national bestsellers. There are financial pressures that people really hadn't felt in the post-war era. I mean, this Mm. is also a period where people refused to wear seatbelts. Just kind of this notion of personal privacy was stronger than what we've learned to accept today. Of course, airlines could have put a stop to these hijackings almost immediately if they had simply installed more robust security, um, just in the form of metal detectors and x-ray machines for carry-on bags. But they refused to do so because they thought it would alienate passengers. Hmm. Most airlines through this period didn't even check IDs. So you didn't have to present an ID when you bought a ticket. And in fact, D.B. Cooper didn't present an ID and bought his ticket with cash, which is why we have no idea who he actually was. Um, So in a sense, uh, this was just 
kind of a period tailor made for people to do exactly what the the parachute hijackers did. And incredibly, hijackers, not just the parachute hijackers, carried just an extraordinary array of things on planes in their carry-ons. They carried on rifles, shotguns, bombs of all description, most of them fake, pistols, dynamite, or what they said was dynamite. One hijacker, Arthur Barkley, carried on a gallon of gasoline. (laughs) Wow. How bad did it get during this four-year period in this sense? Like how commonplace was it? I mean, you, you, you tell some of the stories that you lay out in the book are, you describe the phenomenon as kind of surreal. A hijacker running across the apron of an airport with a pillowcase on his head and a gun in his hand. One riding a bike with a rifle on the handlebars. As you said before, shotguns and hand grenades and dynamite and these fake bombs. It was kind of like the Wild West. It's like there were no rules or anything, it seems. Well, this starts in 1968 and 1969 primarily with hijackings to Cuba. And Mm. they're really not politically motivated as much as as they're often portrayed as. They certainly had no link to the Cuban government that was kind of uh, befuddled with what to do about all of this. A large part of them were homesick Cubans uh, who just couldn't figure out any other way to get back to the island. And in every case, Passengers were unharmed. In fact, the Cuban government went out of its way to show them a good time, which they charged the airlines for. Uh, if, it required, <laughs> if it required an overnight stay, they put them up at the former Havana Hilton or out at a big hotel on the beach. They served them lavish meals. They took them to nightclubs. They showed passengers a good time. And so People came away from these experiences often thinking that they had gotten something like a free vacation. Um, some passengers actually deliberately booked tickets through Miami, hoping to get hijacked. So it was kind of hard to see this as a dangerous epidemic. Uh, no passengers were killed until 1971. And for the airlines, it just looked like a cost of doing business. You know, every once in a while you had an extra layover in Havana. Um, it, it was hard to see this, even though people were breaking the law and they were carrying weapons on board. It was hard to see it as a really dangerous situation. I want to ask you about your own interest in flying <laughs> and how that influenced the way you, you know, the way you told the story, even the way you reported it. Because you write about how you learned to fly from your father. You yourself are a pilot. What's the, what's the connection here? Well, yeah, planes have always been a part of my life. I grew up flying with my dad. Some of my earliest memories of doing things with him are in airplanes. And then when I was in high school, I worked at the local airport and got my pilot's license as well. So flying is something I've always done. I didn't really think about turning it into a research project until fairly recently. And then I began teaching this history of flight class. And From the beginning, it was obvious that one of the students' favorite lectures was D.B. Cooper. And so I thought, well, maybe there's more I can do with this. So I began looking up other hijackings and 
uh, eventually found Martin McNally, the hijacker of American 119, and called him up, and we talked on the phone, and then he Zoomed wow. into my class, and uh, just sort of one thing led to another, and it turned into just really a fun research project and a fun book to write. Before we get to Martin McNally and Flight 119, I want, to, I want you to say a little bit more, if you would, about um, – because you do touch on in the book that early history of flight travel. You mentioned that airline hijackings, of course, were this product of, of the jet age. So what happens before? What is it I, – I guess what's it like in the late 40s, mid 50s? What was it like to get on a flight? Was it dangerous? Was it loud? Was it – I mean what was it like? Yes, the really dangerous, loud part of flying was in the 1930s and before the Second World War. The planes got better after the war, but still the workhorse plane of American aviation, in fact, world aviation, was the DC-3. Hmm. It was not pressurized. You couldn't fly above the weather. It meant that you normally flew below 10,000 feet, which meant that you could get bumped around, thrown around in storms and turbulence quite a bit. It was relatively slow. It cruised at just over 150 miles an hour. It was a pretty rugged and reliable plane, but still there were engine failures that led to um, emergency landings, unexpected delays. Commercial flight was not for the faint of heart. And for most people, it just didn't seem preferable to train travel. Um, partly because it was much more expensive, even for all of the other things you had to endure in planes. And then jets come along in the very late 1950s, and the jet age really arrives at the start of the 1960s. And that really does change everything. Jets are much faster. They fly above the weather. Uh, they're far more comfortable. It creates the jet age. This is where the word jet becomes synonymous with speed. Uh, you, people experience jet lag for the first time because mm. before that, planes weren't fast enough and couldn't fly far enough to really you know, get you across time zones to where it would confuse you. So everything does change in the 1960s. And with that comes the possibility of actually hijacking a plane and taking it a long ways. And that's the thing about hijackings is most of the hijackers don't just want to take the plane from, you know, Pittsburgh to Indianapolis. They want to go someplace further than that. How did you end up focusing on the hijacking of American Flight 119? <laughs> this is the story of, uh, as you mentioned, of a man named Martin McNally. There were a number of these stories you could have told, but how did you settle on – I mean, you of course, we, we'll talk about D.B. Cooper, of course. But how did you settle on this one? Well, Martin McNally was the first hijacker that I talked to. And in that sense, uh, his story is where I started. And from there, I was able to contact some of the crew that had been on the plane and uh, passengers and about two dozen FBI agents who worked the case in various ways. And the thing about the 119 hijacking is that it didn't end right away. So most of the other hijackings ended with the hijacker being caught that day or shortly thereafter. McNally's case went on for nearly a week. 
in three different locations. And it's just a fascinating story with lots of unexpected twists and turns. Let's start at the beginning then. This is uh, of this particular story. This is June 23rd, 1972. Mm -hmm. Uh, As you say in the book, it's a Friday. It's just after two o'clock in the afternoon. And this young man calls himself Robert Wilson, goes and buys a round trip ticket to, to Tulsa for 70 bucks. I want to ask about the, the, the first part of the story where, as you say in the book, he walks through the terminal and he goes directly to his gate. And he has with him a briefcase, has a wig in it, has a pair of rubber gloves, but there's also a smoke grenade and there are two guns and not just any gun. One of them was a machine gun. I know you've talked a little bit about the security part, but let's go back there. What was there in the way of security in those days? Because I think it gets to this this other part that I think will be surprising to so many people that air travel in the country at this time wasn't centralized like it is now. It wasn't necessarily controlled in the same way. So take us to this part of the story and what this says about what the moment, I guess. Yes. So Martin McNally had heard the D.B. Cooper story over the radio, and he thought about it for some time and enlisted a friend, and they spent months planning this hijacking. He decided on the St. Louis airport, he came down and and checked it out and realized that some of the airlines still had not installed metal detectors, so he would be able to get a weapon through security. Had a fake birth certificate made because by this time, the middle of 1972, some airlines were requiring you to present some form of ID when you bought your ticket. Um, So he had a fake birth certificate with the name Robert Wilson. He got this machine gun. It's actually a really crude machine gun, but he cut 11 inches off the barrel and then took the stock and grip off so that it would fit in an average size business briefcase and then had a small caliber pistol and the wig and the grenade in the briefcase. Bought his ticket a little bit before the flight. And then the day of the flight, he had a friend drop him off at the airport. He walked through the terminal, walked to the gate, handed his ticket to the gate agent, and then walked directly onto the plane and took his seat. So he had to be sure that it was a 727 because, of Mm. course, he needed the aft stairs to jump from. And St. Louis was the kind of airport where they flew a lot of short-haul flights in 727s, so it wasn't hard to get a ticket uh, where you could be sure that that was the plane you would be on. You mentioned the 727. Say more about that. This Because this era of parachute hijackings wouldn't have happened, you say in the book, without the innovation of this particular plane. And this particular feature, this aft stairs, say more about this part. Yeah, it's part of the evolution of the jet age. So the first successful money-making jet airliner was the Boeing 707. And it really did revolutionize long-haul travel. It was the perfect plane to fly from New York to London. But it wasn't a very good short-haul plane. So if you wanted to go New York to Pittsburgh to St. Louis to Tulsa, you know, to Phoenix, to L.A., that really wasn't what the 707 was built for. It needed long runways. It needed a lot of external support equipment that many smaller airports didn't have. 
So Boeing wanted to build a smaller commercial jet that would be able to service these shorter routes and smaller airports. And that was the 727. It had a number of features that made it particularly well suited for doing that. It could land and take off in not quite half the distance of a Boeing 707. It was the first uh, jet airliner to have its own auxiliary power unit to start its own engine. So you didn't need, you know, like an external cart to wheel up to start the engines. And then the stairs. So they thought about this and they said, well, what if we land at an airport where they don't have external stairs to wheel up? How are people going to get off the plane? So they put in these aft stairs that could be lowered um, from the tail. And that way, the plane was completely independent of, you know, a a lot of ground equipment. But the thing about the stairs is no one thought that, well, should we make them so that they can't be opened in flight? Because why in the world would you want to do that? So, in fact, you could open them in flight. If you were going very fast, the slipstream would mean that they wouldn't fall all the way down and lock in place. But um, if you were going to parachute from them, you didn't need to do that. (laughs) Who was the first one who thought of that, that we, I can use those aft stairs to jump and escape? As far as we know, it was D.B. Cooper. Yeah. Now, there are stories that some of the CIA cutouts used them for exactly this purpose in Laos and uh, during the Vietnam War, but that was all classified and uh, people didn't generally know about that. John Wigger... He's a professor of history at the University of Missouri. His book is called The Hijacking of American Flight 119, How D.B. Cooper Inspired a Skyjacking Craze and the FBI's Battle to Stop It. We'll take a break. Come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. Let's talk about what I guess this is the beginning of this hijacking epidemic, November 1971. It's the hijacking of Northwest Orient Flight 305, the most, of course, famous hijacking case in history, the story of D.B. Cooper. How does this story begin? Just take us to the first part. How does um, this mysterious character get on, on the plane? Tell us the first part of the story. Yeah, he goes to the Portland airport and he buys a ticket to Seattle for $20. And he tells the agent who's selling him the ticket that his name is Dan Cooper, which the agent Mm -hmm. writes on the ticket. But of course, he isn't required to present any ID and he's paying in cash. So there's no other way to trace who he was. By most accounts, he was in his mid-40s. He looked unremarkable. Uh, He boards the plane. It's not very crowded. It's only about a third full. And he takes a seat at the back right. And hijackers, if they had a choice, always sat in the last row because they could see everything in front of them. This is also the period where even for short flights, you were often served a drink while you were still on the ground. So as they're preparing to take off, one of the stewardesses, Florence Schaffner, is going through the cabin serving drinks. And Cooper at one point hands her a note. And uh, so another feature of this time period was that the majority of passengers were men. Flying was relatively expensive. People still wore suits and ties to get on planes. The stewardesses were predominantly young women in their 20s and often in their very early 20s. 
and they got approached by men a lot, um, handed right. notes and things like that. So Florence Schaffner just put it in her pocket, you know, figuring it was just one of these notes from a lonely business traveler. And Cooper saw her do this, and he finally motioned her over and said, uh, Miss, you'd better read that note. I have a bomb. And that's when the hijacking begins. So he wants $200,000, and he wants it by 5 o'clock in cash, of course. He wants two backpack parachutes, two front parachutes. He wants a fuel truck ready to refuel. So those are his demands. And you say that Cooper seemed to know something about airplanes, probably knew something about parachuting. I mean, he he's the one who wanted those aft stairs to be left down. What can you discern from that about D.B. Cooper? Well, he had the pilots fly with the wheels down and the wing flaps at 15 degrees. Hmm. And you have to know something about airplanes to know that that will keep the airplane flying pretty slowly in the case of a 727 at about 200 miles an hour. He also knew that the aft stairs could be lowered in flight and he asked the pilots to fly no higher than 10,000 feet so that the plane wouldn't be pressurized so that the stairs um, could be lowered. But he didn't actually know how they worked. So he knew a, a fair amount about airplanes, but he had to have one of the stewardesses show him how to put the aft stairs down. And he originally wanted them lowered before they took off, but the pilots told him, look, when we when we rotate nose up, they'll drag on the ground and that might damage them. So he said, okay, we can open them in flight. So he knew it could be done, and he knew how to set the airplane up so that it would fly low and slow. But the 727 in particular, he didn't know all that well. Talk about the moment he he jumps. It's a little after 8 o'clock at night, I guess, because there's this this thing you write about, and it it, it becomes a, a kind of an interesting detail in the other hijackings, is there's this pressure oscillation that plays out when 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 someone jumps from a plane. Huh. Talk about this moment. Yeah, so this is the first time that commercial pilots had had this experience, so they didn't really know what was going to happen. Yeah. But at one point, um, it's about 8.05 at night, they feel this pressure surge, oscillation, their ears pop. And what they later figure out that that is, is as Cooper is out there on the back stairs, the aft stairs behind the plane, they're not locked in place. So they're floating. They're kind of like a diving board. And mm. so when he's on that and he finally jumps off, it's like a diver jumping off a board. The stairs initially go down with him and then they snap back up towards the fuselage and basically push air into it and you feel that little pressure bump. And of course, in subsequent parachute hijackings, pilots knew to to pay attention to this. And when they felt that bump, that's that they could know that that was when the, the hijacker actually jumped. You write uh, in, in this story that the conditions were for D.B. Cooper, awful for parachuting, but great for escaping notice. And then there's always this question. We'll get to your theory a little bit later because uh, I find that interesting. You have your own – you know, you've done a lot of work on this, so you have your own sort of idea what happened. But he jumps in terrible weather, it seems. It is. It's pretty cold. 
It's rainy. Uh, it's below freezing up at altitude. He might have been wearing something like thermal underwear under his suit, but in any case, he's jumping in a business suit. Yeah. And he jumps at night over uncertain terrain. But of course, all the parachute hijackers jumped at night except for one, because if you jumped during the day, people could watch your parachute come down and, right. and know exactly where you were. As it turns out, again, some of the other hijackers jumped also in really difficult circumstances, and, and somehow they all survived with no serious injuries. We don't, of course, know what happened to Cooper. And the FBI was convinced from the beginning that he died as a result of the jump. Yeah. But none of the other parachute hijackers died. So, um, you know, why D.B. Cooper? It's, it's, I don't think it's by any means a foregone conclusion that he died when he jumped. So D.B. Cooper becomes a folk hero, you say. Let's talk about that part. What's what's going on in the country as people are hearing about this story? It seems like, I, I guess among some, there's probably some outrage, certainly law enforcement. But he people are really sort of looking to D.B. Cooper as kind of this Robin Hood figure. Well, yes, he had taken money from a big corporation, but yeah. who did that really harm? And the stewardesses... Both Tina Mucklow and Florence Schaffner afterwards said that he was really very polite um, and very nice to them. <laughs> he kind of joked around with them during the hijacking. He sipped his bourbon and seven up and chain smoked his Raleigh cigarettes wearing his wraparound sunglasses. To most people who read stories about him, or at least to a lot of people, he didn't seem like a sinister figure. In fact, he seemed pretty darn cool, right? Um, so uh, it was hard to see him as much of a villain. He took a little bit of money from corporate America and uh, did it in style. And for the time, it just seemed like the kind of person that people looked at and said, you know what, I hope that guy makes it. I think this gets us to the, the, the part of the book where you, you kind of explore the type uh, like there was like there's a phenotype of of the people who the men who would eventually try to hijack or would hijack planes and jump out of them with parachutes what was the type you you mentioned they were associated with or most of them were associated with the sort of the traumatic experience of war what were the other kind of psychological characteristics that that made them think they could or should hijack a plane. Yeah, for the parachute hijackers, they were clumped into two age ranges, either mid to late 20s or mid 40s, which really corresponded to service either in Vietnam or the Second World War. So it's pretty clear that um, all of them suffered from some degree of uh, PTSD from their military <laughs> service. If you look at hijackers more broadly, for most of them, this is either not their first experience of the trauma war, or it's not their first experience of being arrested or having a brush yeah. with the law or indeed going right. to prison. So this is another kind of common denominator. Hijacking a plane and parachuting out the back is probably 
not your first crime, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what's going on here is that being arrested and put in prison unmoors people in the same way that going to war and, and combat can do. These are people who really, at some deep level, feel alienated from the world around them. Um, they just feel like they're really not connected to the rest of society, and therefore the rules aren't quite the same, right? Um, they just figure that they can do things that just would never occur to other people to do. So it's not it's not just the average person, if there is such a thing, that gets up one day and says, I'm going to hijack a plane um, with a pistol and a machine gun and a briefcase. At one point, D.B. Cooper said to one of the stewardesses, I don't have a grudge against your airline, ma'am. I just have a grudge. Yeah. Yeah. That seemed really telling. And and also they were desperate. <laughs> Seems like they were to a man, they were they were sort of at their wits end in some way. They were. I mean, so the one nineteen hijacker Martin McNally, he had recently been divorced. Yeah. Um he was unemployed. He had been arrested a number of times for smaller petty crimes. He was behind on his mortgage. The bank had sent him foreclosure notices. I mean, to McNally, it did seem like he was kind of at his wit's end, and this might be the thing to set everything right. Mm. If he came home with half a million dollars, which is you know more than $2 million in today's money, he could solve all his money problems, and he could impress his friends, and he could be somebody. And I think if there if there's one sort of foundational thing that all the parachute hijackers, and in fact, many of the hijackers from this era were looking for, it was respect. And the D.B. Cooper hijacking seemed to set the blueprint for that. Here was someone who had done this and gained the respect of seemingly millions of other people he'd never met. And I think that's that at its at its core, that's what they were looking for was that kind of respect. John Wigger, his book is The Hijacking of American Flight 119, how D.B. Cooper inspired a skyjacking craze and the FBI's battle to stop it. We'll take another break. Come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. I want to have you say a little bit about this story of a man named David Hanley. (laughs) I'm not sure where this story fits. Who drives his wife's 1971 black Cadillac Eldorado convertible into a plane. Tell this story and how this fits in your your, uh, larger story. Yeah. David Hanley lived in St. Louis. He was something of a self-described inventor. And he had gone to a hotel directly across from the St. Louis airport on the day of the hijacking. And after his meeting, he had gone up to, they had a rooftop bar that you could sit at, and it overlooked the airport. You could see the apron and planes taxiing in and out. And he just, with along with a lot of other people, he sat there through the afternoon and into the evening watching this hijacking play out on televisions in the bar, but also just being able to look out the window and when the plane was on the ground, see it there and see all of the kind of law enforcement and support vehicles around it. At one point, Hanley stood up late at night, just before midnight, and said, I'm going to stop this and just watch me do it. 
And he went down and he got in his wife's Eldorado convertible Cadillac. He knew the airport, so he found a chain link fence gate and he rammed his car through the gate. Actually, it took him two tries to do it. And then he drove up to the plane and, and turned and drove down the length of the runway and then turned around to face the plane. And at this point, the uh, FBI agent in charge was on the radio, Bill Sullivan, yelling at all the agents to try and find out who was who was driving around on the runway. And they finally figured out it wasn't one of them, if for no other reason than, than that the FBI didn't drive Eldorado convertibles. <laughs> and this was the moment when the plane was powering up. They had the money, they had the parachutes, they had everything McNally had demanded. And David Hanley put his foot down, accelerated, drove down the runway. He got up to about 90 miles an hour. And in the plane, because he had his lights on, they could see him coming. And they didn't know what was happening at first. And then they finally dawned on them that he was going to ram the plane. But there was nothing they could do about it. So Hanley hit the nose gear, reportedly hit about 90 miles an hour, careened off that and smashed up against the port landing gear. And it disabled the plane, so the plane was damaged enough that they could not take off in that plane. Of course, there were FBI agents all over the place, and they drove up immediately, and everybody thought Hanley was dead. He was hanging over the side of the car. He had numerous injuries, but it turned out he was actually alive. They pulled him out and put him in an ambulance and sent him to the hospital. But it did mean that at that point... They had to switch planes to continue the hijacking. And of course, on the plane, Martin McNally was just going nuts because he had no idea what had just happened. He felt this impact and the pilots were on the public address trying to assure him that they hadn't done this and they didn't know what was going on either. And they were afraid that the plane might catch on fire. Either the car or the plane was leaking fuel and the engines were still running. I mean, for a few minutes, it was just utter chaos both inside and outside this plane. (laughs) Talk about Rob Hetty. What's crazy about this story, of course, and and, and maybe you should talk a little bit about why Reno seemed like such a good spot to hijack a plane, but um, he jumps this perimeter fence, runs across the runway. He's got a pillowcase over his head and he just boards the plane like he doesn't go through the regular process it's 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 a really i have to say it's kind of a great story talk about rob hetty yeah rob hetty um this was reno nevada which was known as hijackers heaven because the security was so bad and the fence surrounding the apron where all the planes were parked was just three foot high three foot chain link fence so rob hetty decided he didn't even want to go through the trouble of buying a ticket. He just went and jumped the fence. He had a pillowcase over his head with eye holes cut out. He had a three fifty seven revolver in one hand and his parachute. He actually was an experienced parachute jumper in the other. And he ran up to a plane that the passengers were a 727. The passengers were just deplaning, ran onto the plane and pointed the pistol at one of the flight attendants and said, I'm hijacking this plane which he did. He had a plan. Uh, He wanted to jump at night. So by the time they took off with the money, he asked for $200,000. 
He gave them a specific route that he wanted them to fly. And he had parked his car about 20 miles away at the other end of Washu Lake. So he gave them a course to fly that would take him, he hoped, right over his car. He had brought a fishing vest to carry the money in. This was his solution on how not to lose the money on the way down. And he stuffed as much of it as he could into the fishing vest, but he ended up leaving $45,000 on the plane, which I think says a lot about Rob Hetty and where he was at, because if it's really just about the money, you don't leave $45,000 behind. Uh, But he jumped at 12,000 feet, about 300 miles an hour, where he thought his car was. He was not injured when he landed. He actually took the fishing vest off and buried it, planned to come back and get it later. But as it turns out, uh, where he landed was several miles from his car. So, of course, the pilots had reported where they thought he jumped, and every law enforcement in the area was out looking for him. And a couple of sheriff's deputies were cruising the dirt roads around the lake, and they came across a parked car with a Parachute Association bumper sticker. (laughs) And they looked at each other and just thought, what are the odds? So they just sat there for the rest of the night, and about five in the morning, uh, Rob Hetty came walking up, retrieved his keys from under a rock, and got in the car, and they arrested him. (laughs) Well... Let's talk about what brings this era of epidemic hijackings uh, to an end. Turns out Martin McNally, he was the last parachute hijacker to jump. Did it just ab- abruptly end? Like what what happens? Because it does seem that it just stopped happening. Yeah, there are other hijackings in the second half of 1972. And again, they get increasingly violent. There are shootouts on planes with passengers. There are hijackings that just go on and on for, you know, more than 24 hours. And at this point, it begins to look to most people like it's no longer just this sort of interesting, quirky thing that's happening. It is actually really something dangerous that can happen to you when you get on a plane. Mm. So airlines get serious about putting in the kind of security that can keep people from carrying machine guns and things like that on planes. They put in metal detectors and x-ray machines. And uh, really overnight, it ends that phenomenon of extortion hijackings as it had taken shape in especially 1972. You mentioned how as the this epidemic of hijackings declined, that the hijackers themselves faded from view. People don't really remember Martin McNally or Richard McCoy. Those aren't necessarily popular names. But of course, D.B. Cooper is. So I wanted to come back to the legend of D.B. Cooper here finally, because you say in the book that Cooper is a celebrity unspoiled by reality. What do you mean by that? Right. So because we don't know who D.B. Cooper is, or was, he can be anybody you want him to be. Yeah, You can make him anybody you want him to be. He can be a really good but tragic figure. He can be cool. He can be sophisticated. You can imagine him being just about anybody you want. With the other hijackers, they were caught, and we learned who they were and all about them. And at that point, 
all of the mystery is gone. So I think with Cooper, it, it just is a function of the mystery. Who was he? What happened to him? What was he really like? Well, you've spent a good amount of time with the Cooper story. And in the book, you um, offer your own sort of guess on the mystery. I don't know if you want to give that away, but can I ask you a little bit about that? Oh, sure. And I I, I wouldn't claim to <laughs> definitely not solved it in, in any sense. But it seems pretty clear to me that Cooper likely survived the jump because yeah. everybody else did, even mm-hmm. those who had absolutely no parachuting experience at all when they jumped. So the notion that, uh, you know, his body is just out there waiting to be found, I doubt that it is. I think that he he walked away, so to speak, mm-hmm. which also explains why the parachute, the rest of the things he had with him have never been found because he could easily have hidden those. That's what Martin McNally did after he landed. Who he was, the flight attendants who were always the best judge of mm-hmm. who the, you know, the the character, uh, the, the sort of uh, description of the hijackers, they described him as being in his mid-40s, which would correspond to service in the Second World War. I imagine that he was probably a, a combat veteran. You know, that's mm-hmm. part of the process that kind of take someone to the point where they would do something like this. Either that or in combination with that, I think this was probably not his first caper. He had probably been to prison or at least been arrested before this. So I think if you want to create a profile of Cooper, uh, it's probably someone who served in the Second World War, who had brushes with the law, indeed uh, might very well have spent some time in prison as other hijackers had. And he kept his mouth shut. You said that, you know, he, he you said that he, he didn't get caught because he followed that that cardinal rule of getting away with it. Don't talk. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, if Richard McCoy had if his sister-in-law and wife hadn't known about it, he probably would have gotten away with it, too. Uh, mm-hmm. Martin McNally, it took the FBI a week to track him down. And that's only because he talked, told friends about it. If nothing else, if Cooper survived, he never talked. And I think it's entirely likely he had an accomplice. Almost all the other hijackers did as well. Someone to drop them off at the airport, someone to pick them up after they landed. And if so, that accomplice never talked either. Probably dead by now, you think. But you say he's out there waiting to be found. Think anyone's ever going to solve this one? I do, actually. Hmm. Um, I think it's, I I think eventually with, uh, you know, the way we're expanding the kind of reach of, oh, people, ancestry searches and social networks, um, I think eventually enough things will fall into place to identify who he was. I, I think the starting point, though, is to kind of settle on a profile rather than just try and find an individual and then try and make all of the evidence fit that individual. It's a better approach to kind of make some good guesses and establish a profile and then sort of uh, assemble a database and and work your way through it. John Wigger, do you think something like that hijacking epidemic could ever happen again? I mean, you, you write about this coming revolution in flight which you kind of compared to the advent of, of the jet age, which brought us that epidemic. But, you know, this new technology that's coming, different kinds of airships, the possibility of a 
decentralized system in some ways for air travel. Do you think that the kinds of conditions that happened then could happen again in some way? Not exactly. Um, you know, history just isn't like that. We'll never have that same cultural mindset that people <laughs> had in the late 60s, early 70s. Nobody wore seatbelts. Now we just do it routinely and we don't see it as an invasion of our privacy. But I do think it's possible that as something like air travel changes, there are going to be unexpected parts of that transition that will surprise us. John Wigger, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. This has been fun. John Wigger, he's a professor of history at the University of Missouri. His book is called The Hijacking of American Flight 119, How D.B. Cooper Inspired a Skyjacking Craze and the FBI's Battle to Stop It. Radio West is a production of KUER. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. I'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas or comments or feedback, you can email us at radiowest at KUER.org. The program is produced by Benjamin Bombard and Tim Slover. Kerry Watson is our executive producer. I'm Doug Fabrizio.